Today's reading is uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 41. It can be found on page 932 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He will be killed and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can, be, can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly be rewarded. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Karen. Let's take a moment and uh, pray. Our gracious God, thank you for drawing us here and and help us to know as we sit here and come from all different places that you have drawn us there's something bigger going on we have been brought here for a reason we sit here whether it be kind of dull to life and dull to spiritual reality or whether we come with with strong disbelief and intense questions or whether we come with joy and recent experiences that feel like answers to prayer, or whether we come feeling like one, at one time we had a faith that was strong, but it, it seems to elude us and we wonder if we can ever grasp that again from all these places. Help us to know we're here for a reason. Help us to know and to be intrigued by the the truth that we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. Our lives are frail, fragmented, flawed, and broken. Help us to know that and to be ready to hear the answer to that, that you, through Jesus, move towards broken and frail and flawed people so that we might know that we are more loved and validated and cared for than we ever imagined in Christ. Help us, whether we need to know that message enough that we might start moving towards you or whether we just need a reminder so that we might run more, uh, more aggressively towards your grace. Speak to us now and let that love and grace transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you notice that in this story, uh, in this narrative of the apprentices of Jesus, uh, that the disciples, or the twelve as they're called, 
are in desperate need of outside information. They're not grasping uh, essential things that Jesus wants them to grasp. They need to be taught. The penny hasn't yet dropped. In terms of their own spiritual growth, um, if, they don't, if they don't grasp some new things, some outside things, the growth will look a whole lot more like atrophy. And so you see in the story, there's sort of this fumbling and bumbling and not quite getting it. It's this private time of teaching the apprentices. And Jesus is concerned that it's, people don't know where he is because he's going to do some good work with his apprentices. It shouldn't surprise us that they, they need outside teaching. They need to be taught. Um, I, people don't sign up for a class uh, or a credential program or something that they want to learn about and grow about. They don't sign up for it and go and show up and say, well, I know exactly what this is going to be like. Um, you know, and it, it, it darn well better involve this and that and, and this, these ways of doing this new thing that I don't know how to do. It better teach me all that and it better do it in a particular way. That's usually not the way you approach a class. You say, I don't know this realm. I don't, I don't know how to do this. I need, someone to, I need someone to teach me. We don't come with those kind of expectations that we're just going to learn a whole bunch of stuff that we already know. Uh, if I signed up for a swing dancing class, um, I wouldn't go in and expect it, that I would know exactly how those lessons would go and how that teaching should be formatted and exactly what my teacher should be like and what kinds of things he, should, he or she should tell me so that I learn correctly. I, I wouldn't have any expectations. I basically have to admit going into it that I haven't had an, a single accurate thought in all my life about swing dancing, right? And it cuts across all kinds of aspects of life. I've, um, you know, I'm trying to grow potatoes in my garden. And you know, I kind of had to admit, I don't know how to do that at all. I've never... I, you know, there's nothing stored in here that tells me how that works because, you know, it's, it's a thing underground. How do you know when to pick it or pull it? Like, how do you know when it's ready? You know, I don't know. I, I, I need someone to teach me. This is just a standard way that we operate with things. I could, I could, I could use this mentality with Spanish uh, speaking. My wife and I sometimes will try to have one of these covert conversations in Spanish around the kids. And uh, my wife... Um, is fluent in Spanish and can do this, and I, I can fake it, you know. And she can sort of catch my anglicized attempts to put a Spanish sentence together because I have some high school Spanish. Um, and so we come out of that with, with just, you know, anybody who heard, who knew Spanish and heard these conversations would say, I don't even know what you're saying. She only knows because she knows how, with kind of a wink and a nod, I'm just butchering the language almost on purpose, almost to just show how bad I am at it. Um, and sometimes it actually works, but usually it's a flop when we try to have those, those secret conversations. I'm butchering the language, and I should just stop and go, I'm, I'm not going to continue that anymore. I'm not going to pretend I can do that until I go back and find someone to teach me and, and figure out what I don't know. In many ways, today's story is basically inviting you to, to ask yourself if, if possibly you are butchering the spiritual life, <laughs> because you need to be taught. For some reason, in the realm of spirituality, if you go by a lot of the conversations you'll have with people, and that I've had with people, we don't treat it the way we treat every other area of life that we want to grow in. 
Have you noticed this? That when people come to the spiritual realm, you have a lot of expectations and a lot of standards. God must be this way, otherwise I can't deal with God, or I can't go and learn from that God. That God, the God that I'm going to try to believe in better have this, that, and the other, and it better not challenge me in this part of my life, right? So we've got all these ways in which, and I think this is unique to our culture and the world we live in now, that this is actually, I would say, dominant, that most of you would come with a good, a good amount of this as you come to spiritual growth. A sense that, even if you don't admit it right now as I'm saying it, there's some sense in which you come to it and you have, you know, oh, I think the growth ought to go this way. I think it's going to look like this. And at the same time, this is what I notice, is that as we do that and as I talk to people and as they have that attitude, at the very same time in their life, in their emotional life, in their personal life, in their psychological life, they're hitting up against doors that are locked and that aren't opening. And they're banging their heads up against these doors. And they don't have the key. And I would put forward today that those two are interrelated. The failure to approach the spiritual world and say, this is new information, this is new terrain, this is the unknown. In fact, this, this passage describes the disciples as being, uh, if you kind of go back to the Greek, as being agnostic when Jesus tries to teach them. Basically, not knowing is what that construction means. Can you admit, can you enter into the spiritual realm and say, I am not knowing? If you do, and if my proposal is that you uh, come to Jesus expecting him to have new material, things that are new to you, new terrain opened up before you, and that through that, those doors become unlocked. You, the key presents itself. And so in order to do that, you need to do two things, I think this passage is telling us. And the first is to admit your need to be taught. I don't think we're very good at this, like I'm saying, and I think that our approach sounds a whole lot more like not being taught, but we approach things as we're developing ourselves. It's a much more uh, comfortable realm for us that um, in my day-to-day life, as I pursue what I want to grow in, I'm, I'm developing myself. It's sort of this reflexive approach. I make it happen, as opposed to being taught. Do you catch the subtle difference? It has a big implication, and what ends up happening is we end up finding ourselves in a lot like what the disciples are doing. They're doing the same thing that we do. As you look over these, really there's, there's, um, there's three, three little teaching points in here for us. Jesus teaches them about his path. He's going to the, going to the cross. He's going to suffer. Then he teaches them about their little argument about who's going to be the greatest, and he shows a child. And, and then the third part is they've got this issue with another person who's doing some healing, and they think they've scored correctly by telling the person to stop doing miracles in Jesus' name. Now, as they're doing all of that, what we see is this, is that the disciples are pretty much trying to find their significance in a way that ends up being dismissive of others, and they're trying to find their identity in a way that ends up being divisive. It's the same thing that we do. In verse 34, you see them jockeying for significance, and, and they're having this conversation, who's going to be the greatest? Who is the greatest? They're looking for significance. And in some way in your life, you're looking for significance. 
Usually we have, our, we have our sort of our main ways of going about that. They differ between you and me and each person here. We all have our favorite way of looking for significance in life. So that's one thing they're doing. The other thing they're doing in verse 38, they're trying to create an identity for themselves. Do you notice this? And they're trying to do it by being divisive and exclusive. They see someone else doing what you know, Jesus and them are doing, and they say, Jesus, we stopped that guy. You, know, you get a sense of their eager naivete to report this. And essentially, they're looking for their identity. They're trying to define themselves in an exclusivist way, in a divisive way. And I want to suggest we do both things. This is exactly how we need to, why we need to be taught. This is kind of the red flag that should be come up, that we need teaching, we need outside help. Because in our own lives, we are seeking to find significance in a way that becomes dismissive of those who need us most. And we are looking to find identity in a way that's divisive and exclusive, an exclusivist. I think each of us from this story, basically has to, you have to look at your life and say, where am I building my significance in my identity? Where am I doing that? In what ways am I gravitating towards, towards building my significance in my identity? For someone, it's their looks. For another person, it's their money. Um, another person, it's, the, it's, it's your career and your work. Another person, it's, it's, it's accomplishments in a, in a more general way. Uh, maybe accomplishments geared towards your parents or your family. For another person, it's, um, it's that relationship. It's that romantic relationship. That's where I'm going to find my significance and my identity. And I want you to just think about that for yourself. If you, can, if you can kind of identify in yourself. How are you doing the same thing the disciples are doing here? And then just ask yourself, am I attaining what I'm looking for? Am I attaining a deep strong sense of significance and identity? Has, it, has my heart been settled? <laughs> Do I know who I am? Do I know that I'm significant? Do I wake up in the morning and say, because I've attained this, I know I have it. I'm significant. One of my favorite quotes in the world, and I've lays this out for us, it's by Wesley Granberg Michelson, and I'm going to share it in two parts. The first part This goes like this. He says, as long as our identity is vested in what we do, we will forever be vulnerable to the captivity of others' expectations. And we will be subject to the rule, to the rule of our own needs for self-justifying achievement and approval. If our identity remains rooted in our accomplishments and satisfying others' expectations, we remain as children psychologically and spiritually. We work harder and harder to meet external needs because this gives us our sense of worth. But this never quite succeeds. And in the process, our inner self becomes malnourished. Can you relate to that? Have you been self-reflective enough to, to just see some of that going on through some way that you're pursuing your significance and identity? So, so one approach is just to realize that, that you know, your, your, your pursuit of significance and identity is, is falling short. You're not quite landing it and getting what you really need. Another thing to notice, and to, or just to consider, this is kind of a hard thing to consider, but if you look closely, 
that in this attempt to find significance and identity, there are concrete actions that you have done that there's a good chance in your world somebody has experienced and felt your actions to be either dismissive or divisive. In the same way that the apostles come to this person doing things in Jesus' name and imagine what that person must have thought of them so piously telling him to stop what he was doing. Somebody has experienced your pursuit of significance and identity in that same way. Just consider that that might be true. And to them, your pursuit of self-development has de- really, if you want to put a name to it, it's felt narcissistic. Just consider it. I'm not calling anyone narcissistic to, to their face, right? But consider that that might be how you've been experienced. Okay, so you, you, if that's true, you need to be taught. But also, secondly, you need to find yourself, find yourself in God's embrace. Um, Philip Keller is a pastor and a writer who, who puts it this way. Um, when he talks about how we essentially, our identity and our significance is found in, in God's embrace, he says this, when this happens, suddenly life starts to have significance. I discover I am the object of his special care and attention. My thirst for reality in life is assuaged, and I discover that I have found that satisfaction in my master. That's what Philip Keller says. He's basically saying our essential hunt for significance and identity is found only in one place. The doors in your life that need to be unlocked are going to be unlocked only through one thing, and that's God's love. That's God's embrace. And this, you know, as we look at this apprenticeship narrative, um, you know, we first of all, like I just kind of walked us through, we see the second-rate kind of attempts at significance. They're laid bare before us in the apostles, or the, the 12. But the solution is provided as well. And it's the first thing that we're told they, they don't know, they don't get it when Jesus talks about his death and his resurrection. Jesus knows that the secret source of your identity and your significance, he knows what that is, and he teaches about it. In fact, the gospel writers are intent on showing us Jesus' repetitive nature to which he taught them this exact thing. I'm going to go, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. It's the only thing he really had that that way of repetitive teaching to his chosen apprentices because it was was the the key. It was the central thing they needed to understand. It was the the penny that needed to drop eventually for them. It wasn't yet in the story. But this this is where it all leads. You see that in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. He, He will be killed, and after three days he will rise. And the thing to to learn about that, to walk this journey with the the 12, to walk this journey through the Gospel of Mark, is to learn that it is in that, in his death, in the closing actions of Jesus' life on earth, when he dies in your place, that you are given your significance and your identity. When you understand this, how the Gospel writers and how Mark wants you to understand this, it's not just an interesting historical event or an end, a martyred end to a life of, a, of someone who had a lot of good things to say. 
No, no, no. It, consistently throughout the Bible, basically what we're being told here is that God would rather enter the suffering himself than to not get the chance to have you back, to pull you in, to show you you're significant. Talk about significance. Jesus is saying, t- pointing and pointing and pointing towards his death to, to, because this is where, the Bible tells us, this is where God shows you your ultimate significance. He shows you that he would rather take the place of dying and suffering for you than to lose you. That's significance. That's what God has gone through to win you back, to pull you back, to give you a sort of confidence that God's always welcoming you in. So you look at the cross of Jesus, you look at the final actions of his life, and you see your significance. You also see your identity. You find yourself, you find your identity in the fact that it is there on the cross that there's an identity switch that's made. The son goes and takes on the suffering and the death. And as he takes on what our identity deserves, we get his identity as a child of God, permanently sealed up for good. Do you see what this means? Basically, in the, on the cross is where Jesus wants you to look. He wants you to look there every day of your life. He wants this to be hardwired into your, your psyche that, that as you look for significance and identity, as you, as you struggle with that and fall into that every day, to remember who you are, to remember what you've been given, to remember that your significance is settled on the cross, to remember that your identity as a child of God is rock solid and is in operation. All you have to do is just access it any day, any moment. And I think to give you a, a really powerful glimpse of this, to give the disciples initially a very powerful glimpse of this, um, he embraces this child in verse 36. So I think more is going on here than just saying, be nice to children or prioritize the least of these. I think he's definitely saying that. Children were not um, valued. And we're not deserving of this kind of highlighting. So Jesus brings the child into the picture, kind of a circle. He's teaching them, and it's his private. He brings the child in and sets him down, is how this story is described. But then, it's not just that. It's not just see this child, value this child, welcome this child. He, the, the text is very clear in the language. He embraces, which is he takes a child, and it's a full hug. And while he's doing this, he's teaching in describing to the disciples what to do. And that's something, that's an image that you have to be able to access if you're going to figure out what the Christian faith means and grow as a Christian. That's an image that uh, Jesus, I think, wanted his disciples to be accessing as they went off to serve him in various ways later on. That, sure, you need to prioritize the least of these children, hurting, widows, the poor. But you're not even going to be able to do that authentically unless you yourself, if you've seen that you yourself are that vulnerable, undeserving child and God has brought you on his lap and embraced you, lifted you up to heights you didn't deserve, secured you in his embrace. When you have that, the best you can do without that is you can, you can have a a religious sort of legalistic sense of why to do good in the world, why to help the, those in need, but you'll actually go through a lot of periods of running dry and not having the energy to keep it up. 
But if you have that image set and that's your identity, living in the embrace of God, your heart is settled. You can go out and serve the least of these. You'll even have an eye for those opportunities and it'll come like second nature because you yourself have seen how I am so undeserving and look at how God has come to me. Do you know your identity? Do you know your significance? Do you know you need to be taught? Let us pray. God of grace, the disciples in the story, um, in two instances, had nothing to say in reply to what you were saying. They were so disengaged, so far from the spiritual reality that you wanted them to grow in. We might even be in that place this morning. We, we don't know what to say. We don't know how to approach you. We don't know what the right way is. Will you help us? Will you teach us? And will you save us? Through the cross of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.